well, to the frequent flyer. There is one word he loathes to hear. There was one word for those with reservations and connections and destinations, and that is the word taxi. In aviation, taxi time is that time where an aircraft is either on hold or spending time in movement between flights. Perhaps you've experienced this, where everyone on a plane is seated, but you don't move. You're just sitting and waiting and wondering. Or maybe you're all settled in, and the captain comes on and tells you there's going to be a delay due to mechanical repair. Well, that not only affects your schedule, but also induces great anxiety, does it not? Well, there's also the example of the plane on the tarmac in line with other planes, but it feels like a long line and a long wait. It's JFK Airport that ranked first a year ago for the longest in taxi time delays. The average delay was about 27 minutes. Well, to the passenger, these experiences cause frustration and anger and anxiety. And so, too, can it be in the Christian life. In a spiritual slump, taxiing on the runway, unable to take off. We can't get going. There are times when things aren't right with the Lord. They aren't what they used to be. How do I take off? Well, the book of Malachi is addressing the spiritual slump. It's addressing what it means to fall out of fellowship or to struggle in worship. And God is speaking to his people here, and he's telling them what separates them from him. It's a book written a long time ago to a people different than you and I, but a book very applicable to you and I in our day too. And this morning, God turns to the issue of relationships. If our relationships with one another are broken then our worship before God is broken. This is a lesson in Malachi 2, and it comes through a breakdown in marriages, the most important of all human relationships. In this passage, self-centeredness has replaced faithfulness. What it made Israel feel good, what satisfied desires, that replaced what was right. And rather... Than finding satisfaction in these relationships that God gave, Israel set them aside and set out to delight herself in new relationships. Well, as I mentioned, this is a message for you and I today. Married or not married, how we treat one another, it impacts how we treat God. And mistreating Christians, it does not send us flying, but rather leaves us stuck. So to avoid a spiritual slump this morning, we must love others to love God. And that's the driving point of this passage today. If you're not there yet, we'll be in Malachi chapter 2. I invite you to open up your Bibles with me. We're in Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. As you go there, I want to underscore that there is both a subjective and objective aspect to the spiritual slump. Now, oftentimes, you and I, we we will know when we're in a slump. 
We will feel that. We will experience that when things aren't right. And this is because at conversion, when we placed our faith in Jesus, we received God's Holy Spirit. And that Spirit is working within us, permanently indwelling our souls. And when we struggle or when we sin, the Spirit will convict us. So we might say it this way, we feel it or we experience it. That's the subjective aspect of the spiritual slump. But sometimes we may not know it. Perhaps our our conscience has grown seared or certain patterns have become habits. It's possible to realize that we're not even in a slump. And this is why truth is so important. We discussed this last Sunday. Sometimes, whether we feel it or not, God's word tells us we're in a slump. In places in Malachi, Israel, she seems unaware that she is in a slump and struggling. But God comes along and says, here's what I see. And that's always going to be our measuring rod. That is our standard. What does God's word say about it? What does it say about us? It's a reminder then this morning that it's not based on whether we are healthy or whether we're wealthy or whether we're doing pretty good. We may not say that I feel far from God, but if God's word says we're flawed, we're flawed. Our feelings may be wrong because God's word will be our objective standard. Again, most times I think we will feel we're in a slump. We, we sense things. But sometimes when we're out of step, we need God's voice to help us. And that's what God does this morning in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, something he does with Israel. Well, in these first three verses, I want you to see that disobedience in God's plan for relationships harms our relationship with God. Disobedience in God's plan for relationships, it harms our relationship with God. And again, we see this illustrated through Israel in their marriages. Verse 10, do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously against each his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. Now this passage begins with two questions and they're rhetorical questions. Yes, of of course we all have one father in verse 10. And the we that this passage is referring to is, is Judah or Israel. This is the covenant community, the people of God. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 16. You, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from old is your name. There's many passages throughout the Old Testament that indicate God is the Father of Israel. It's a well-established fact. Some believe the Father in verse 10 refers to Abraham, but I believe this refers to God. I think the second question reinforces this, the second rhetorical question. God has created us. Isaiah, again, chapter 44, verse 2. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, 
who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. We put all this together. If God is their creator, and if God is their father, that makes the Israelites brothers and sisters in the family of God. They ought to be treating one another as family. And the third question indicates that wasn't happening. Why do we deal treacherously against each his brother? And that's going to be a key word in our passage this morning. I know it's two words in English, but it's one in Hebrew. Deal treacherously. Some of your Bibles read faithless, unfaithful, has broken faith. Five times in our passage, this word or this phrasing appears. It has to do with one who does not honor an agreement or someone acting unfaithfully in respect to a covenant. You see, God created Israel, and he made Israel sons and daughters. He made them brothers and sisters, and what he did in the law in the Old Testament is he lays out how they can be in right relationship with him and right relationship with one another. But they profaned the covenant of their fathers. One commentator says it this way, for covenants to work, both faith and faithfulness are required. I like that. That's helpful. Faith is required to trust the promises made, and faithfulness is needed to keep the promised commitments. When promises are not kept, then faith is damaged and relationships fall apart. This whole idea of covenant, it's what bridges our world to their world. We have this in common with them. You see, this passage isn't just a a passage for a a different nation and a different time and a different culture and a different location. They were under a covenant to be sure, but you and I are under a covenant with God. The new covenant, they were under the old covenant. In fact, our Bibles are are arranged in a way that, that bears this out and helps us. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. A testament and covenant are, are related concepts. In the New Covenant, just like the Old, it's particularly wicked to treat fellow Christians wrongly, just as it was for Israel to do this to one another. And the most obvious illustration in Malachi's day was the relationship of marriage. Judah has married the daughter of a foreign god. The men of Judah have disobeyed God's word on marriage. They married outside of the covenant community. Marriage is a huge deal. It is the second most important relationship you will ever have in your life. The first being God. Marriage is God's solution to loneliness, It's God's solution to procreation. It's God's solution to societies. Throughout the Old Testament, entire nations are built because of the marriage covenant. In other words, it's so important that if you want to destroy a society, you need to go after marriage. For Israel, their fast track to distraction, destruction, was foreign women. Specifically, the daughters of a foreign god. It's interesting phrasing in our passage. 
And notice here that she is not a daughter of the one true God of Yahweh of the Lord. She's not of Israel, this daughter. And just to keep then with our, our family imagery, she doesn't share the same father as Israel. She doesn't have the same brothers and sisters as Israel. And just to be clear, this isn't an issue of, of, uh, of race. This is an issue of religion. After all, you may recall Moses' wife was Zipporah. She's from Midian. Ruth was a Moabite. Rahab was a Canaanite. But all of them, all of them entered into the covenant with God through faith by faithfulness. But they were also the exception. Because by and far, Israel got into a lot of trouble when they disobeyed God on this. God warned in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, You shall not intermarry with the foreign nations. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. To marry outside the nation, in other words, was disobedience. To do so was to deal treacherously. And when they did, as though they had to find out for themselves, bad things happened. In Judges chapter 3, they're supposed to clean out the Canaanites from the land. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. This became the pattern insofar as Israel disobeyed the law. Well, how about a king? Maybe if Israel had a king, maybe a king with great wisdom, this wouldn't be a problem. Maybe he can buck the trend. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. Verse 4, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God. And sadly, this trend continued. Disobedience made them illiterate, literally. Nehemiah arrives back in the land to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem, and he makes an observation. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoken the language of Ashdod. None of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. You see, they couldn't understand the law, even if they heard it. So derailed had they become in their stance before God. Marriage to unbelievers brought disaster for them. Their nation crumbled. In verse 11, God calls it an abomination. They profane the sanctuary of the Lord. Now, someone may object. Just hold on a minute. What happens in someone's private life that's their business? Church, this is on Sunday. This is a compartment. Who one marries, who one divorces, what does any of that have to do with this? 
What does our text say this morning? God says everything. Private matters are known to God, and they affect our stance before God. They impact the relationship with Israel before their Lord. They impact our relationship before our Lord. You see, this is objective truth. There is a subjective feeling that comes with all of these things, but the Bible says this is objective. This is true. In verse 11, Judah has profaned the sanctuary of God. Her religious practice became a circus act. And because they treated one another so poorly in Israel, their worship suffered. See, God doesn't draw lines where we do. He doesn't see our treatment of one another as not affecting our treatment of him. No, the two are are interconnected. They're linked. You can't pull them apart in God's eyes. Your love for others this morning, it's putting off an aroma in your worship. Your hate for others this morning, it's putting off an aroma in your worship. And as we stand together here and we worship, there is the smell reaching up to heaven. Israel taxied on a spiritual runway and she could not get off the ground. And that's not the worst of it. Look at verse 13. There is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accept it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did the one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. These final few verses reveal that schisms in our relationship harm our relationship with God. The schisms in our relationship, they harm our relationship with God. Now you see in verse 13 that the people are are weeping. There's a sadness. Apparently they had heard that God doesn't want their sacrifices. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 6, we learned there that they're basically offering whatever they wanted to God. They disregarded his law and his statute and decided here's what we're going to give to God. Redefining their worship. And back then, too, they were surprised that God had a problem with this. How have we despised your name? We were giving you something as opposed to nothing. And now they're realizing that their worship is falling short. They're just really unclear as to why that is. What's going on here? What's the problem, Lord? It's because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, says God, against whom you have dealt treacherously. We can connect this going just a little further with verse 16 in a word. It's divorce. Men were divorcing their wives. It's hard to know here if these issues were all interconnected. Were men divorcing their wives to go off and marry foreign women? 
Or were these just two separate things where men were divorcing their wives and other men were marrying foreign women in violation of the covenant? Perhaps there's some overlap, and it's all of that. But under the old covenant, under the law, just to be clear, divorce was permissible. Divorce was permissible. The Lord allowed for divorce in some cases, but notice this, he doesn't require it. He doesn't demand it. Jesus replies to this question in Matthew 19 in his ministry. Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. In other words, divorce is not the plan for God's people. Permanence in marriage, it is. God's plan is for marriage to be permanent, to be a monogamous relationship between one male and one female, and that for life. In Malachi's day, living under the law, Israel was required to obey God's law, including his teachings on marriage and divorce. So what is this law? What was the rule? This is Deuteronomy chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he may write her a certificate of divorce, and put it in her hand and send her out from his house. Certainly an unusual phenomena from where we stand in 2024, but there's a key word in there for a divorce to be biblical for the Israelite. There had to be some, quote, indecency. Now, in the Old Testament, that almost always had to do with some kind of sexual sin that probably applies here in some way. But against that argument is the fact elsewhere in the law that punishment for sexual sin is death. Now, you can imagine throughout history, Jewish rabbis are going to debate this, some pretty loosely. Now, some believe that if a wife burned dinner, that's an indecency. Well, it's doubtful that Moses is going that far in this passage. So there's something perhaps unusual about this rule. We do know what's more clear is that a certificate had to be issued. If a divorce took place, a certificate had to be issued. That gave the woman protection under the law. And finally, she could remarry, though she could not remarry her first husband. Well, the point I want you to see here in all of this is that whatever was happening in Malachi 2, Israel was not doing this. That's the problem. Israel is not following God's law. Not for marriage and evidently not for divorce. You have dealt treacherously, says God. Your wife is your companion and your wife by covenant. Now, verse 15, I believe, is meant to explain this, to draw this out and to make this clear. Unfortunately, this verse is almost impossible to translate. I'm going to read it to you literally. And not one he did or made, and a remnant of spirit is or was to him. And what is or was the one? Seeking seed of God. Now, if that sounds jumbled, it's because it is. And just to be sure, anytime we bring Hebrew into English, there's some work that needs to be done to smooth it out. So that happens all the time regardless. But there's good news. We have a context for what's going on here. In verse 14, God explains he no longer accepts their offerings, 
husbands treated their wives unfaithfully. Looking ahead at verse 16, God says, I hate divorce. And I think there's better news yet, for as this verse moves along, verse 15, it does get clearer till it gets to the end. You and I know, again, most of all, that God wants husbands to remain faithful to their wives. That's helping us as well. So with all that said, I want to offer an explanation for verse 15 to you. I submit it, treading lightly, knowing it's a challenging verse. And since none of our English Bibles translate this the same way, I've selected the ESV Bible as probably the best translation. So I'm going to use this verse to explain it. The ESV reads, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. That gives us then three main points about marriage to boost the argument God makes. First, God unites man and woman in the covenant of marriage. This goes all the way back to the garden, to Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Malachi's answer to that, to that rhetorical answer is yes. Did he, did God not make them one? Yes, God did. God made them husbands and wives in marriage, which, by the way, makes divorce unusual. Secondly, God's Spirit creates unity in the marriage bond. We heard the verse speak about spirit or a spirit or the spirit. And for Israel, being the people of God, led by the Spirit of God, for the men to deal with their wives unfaithfully, well, that just doesn't fit. That doesn't make sense. For after all, you have the Spirit of God. If a man has even a portion of the Spirit, some of your Bibles read residue or remnant, then he must remain united to his wife. Don't deal treacherously. You can hear God laying out the arguments. And thirdly, God established marriage to produce children. The one flesh union is to be fruitful. It's the first command given to the first couple. Be fruitful and multiply. Also, I'm going to interpret that as a unique command to Adam and Eve. Keep in mind there were no people on the planet at the time. And some will interpret that to apply to all of God's people, even down to today. Interpretations then are going to land on two ends of a pendulum that swings. Applications will be very different. On one side, some believe, taking it to the extreme, that you need to have as many children as possible to be fruitful. On the other hand, people that say this command is not for today don't view it that way at all. I suspect the answer probably lies somewhere in the middle. For example, some people may experience infertility. Some people may not be able to raise children. How they invest in young lives, that's going to look different. But we must also admit the contemporary version for marriage as this personal exploration of my happiness, that's far from the Bible's approach. It's also worth mentioning that the culture has a very different view for children and a cultural agenda for them. And that view is far different than the Bible's approach, and might I add, much darker than the Bible's approach. But in summary here, in Malachi's day, notice that God is still calling 
his people to produce godly offspring. And that would be one purpose among many purposes for marriage. So verse 15 lists reasons for marriage to continue. Again, that's how it fits in to this argument God is making. And with all this in mind, God issues a warning at the end of verse 15. Whatever the correct interpretation of this verse may be, we should all pretty much land at the same place here. Take heed then to your spirit. Notice how he says it again at the end of verse 16. In other words, hear this warning. Stop mistreating your wives by divorcing them. And to give you a a nice paraphrase by one commentator that brings it all together, this is just another way of, um, of translating this verse into smooth English. Don't you know God acted as witness to those marital covenants you have broken? Do you think there will be no consequences? And don't you know that he made you one with your wives? And in spite of your treachery, in putting away your wives, there is still a remnant of that spiritual bond. And what is the nature and purpose of that oneness? It is to seek a godly seed from God. I like how that helps to bring it together into English that would be more understandable for us. Well, verse 16 was going to then record God's strongest statement on divorce. In verse 16, God says, I hate divorce, and him who covers his garment with wrong. Now, this statement isn't contradicting Deuteronomy 24. Remember, back there, we explored uh, an allowance for divorce. There are other passages in the New Testament that do something similar for very specific scenarios. But this statement in verse 16 matters due to context. We need to consider what the context is as we understand it. In Malachi 2, men marry daughters of foreign gods. They've been divorcing their wives, their spiritual sisters, to do so. And this practice was evidently widespread enough to warrant this warning. And the man who does this, God says, covers his garment with wrong. That's going to be perhaps an imagery of marriage. This garment, this covering, both Ezekiel and Ruth use it that way. But we see here that unfaithfulness is polluting the marriage. The illustration for you and I would be wearing clothing, maybe a a white shirt, and it's splattered or stained. That's what this verse is describing. Well, this passage this morning is explaining a spiritual slump that God's people fell into. And they hadn't followed God's plan for relationships, and as a result, they've found their worship rejected by God. One conclusion I want to give you four closing thoughts that I hope bring this into our world, encourage us, perhaps challenge us. I want you to know, first and foremost, as you may experience, broken relationships happen. Broken relationships happen. This is unavoidable. The best chance you and I have at avoiding broken relationships is to move and live on a deserted island. Inevitably, Someone's going to complain that you don't write, and you'll have another broken relationship. This is human nature, isn't it? Conflicts, conflicts, interpersonal conflicts, 
between family members, between Christians. These things happen. We hate to say it, but it's real. It's normal. The issue here is how we resolve them. The issue is how we resolve them. Many times, God's people do not resolve conflicts God's way. And God has a lot to say about this, by the way. Proverbs is chalked full of wisdom on how to work in relationships. Jesus teaches on it. Paul writes to churches, churches just like Emmanuel Bible Church. He tells them how to reconcile. We think of ourselves more like a Thessalonian church than a Corinthian church, but nevertheless, there is wisdom on how to reconcile relationships. So don't be surprised at conflicts, but don't ignore God's word on how to resolve them either. Secondly, don't break the biggest relationship. Don't break the biggest relationship. If you are married this morning, stay married. If you are married, Christian to Christian, stay married. If you're married, Christian to non-Christian, stay married. Ephesians 5 teaches that marriage is a picture of Jesus Christ and his church. It's that level of attachment. The New Testament does allow for divorce for two reasons. The first would be sexual immorality. And the second is abandonment by an unbeliever. But notice it never commands it. And as much as we can, we want to stay married. And I know that there's some here this morning who have a spouse who isn't a Christian. You are uniquely situated to make a huge impact for Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, it teaches how husbands are won to Christ by their wives. The behavior, the godly behavior of believing wives can lead men to Christ. And I suspect, too, men before their wives can lead their wives to Christ by loving them and cherishing them. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 teaches us about a holy influence in the house when there is a believing spouse there. Listen, these marriages, these are occasions for hope and for grace because God is a God of hope and grace. It's also worth mentioning this morning, if you are here and you're seeking to marry, don't marry a Christian. Marry a growing Christian. You want to marry a man or woman who is growing in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And if they testify to being a Christian, you test that out. Do they hunger and thirst for righteousness? It's so important that we do this right, that we do this God's way. Marrying within the community of faith. Well, thirdly, If you're here this morning and if you've suffered divorce, divorce is not an unforgivable sin. Yes, the Bible says God hates divorce, but you know what else? God loves those who experience divorce. In Christ, every Christian is forgiven past, present, future. If you played some role, some sinful role in divorce, God forgives you for that. More than this, we see in the Bible that God is a God who heals, isn't he? He can heal those who have initiated a divorce. He can heal those suffering as a result of the divorce. God's extending unending grace to all of his people regardless of the sin. Such an important point to remember today. And lastly, relationships must be right for you and I to worship rightly. In our passage today, Israel dealt unfaithfully in her relationships. She disobeyed God's word and loving her neighbor. That was illustrated through the marriage relationship. 
In his book entitled, Where Are You, O God?, John Oswald writes this, quote, You test the reality of your commitment to live in covenant with God by evaluating the level of commitment to the lesser covenants of your life. It is somewhat futile to talk about your healthy commitment to God if your face-to-face commitments are diseased. On the other hand, if your earthly covenants are in good order, how much easier it is to do those things which are necessary to cement the covenant with God. So that's the hard question for us this morning. If I came in to worship with an unloving heart toward a Christian, is my worship broken? How would Amalekai answer that? John reminds us later in the Bible in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his neighbor, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not. To which you and I may very well say to John, boy, John, I love the Lord. But I just really struggle to love so-and-so. That may be true and it may be hard to do it, but the Bible says in Christ you can do it. It doesn't need to be like David and Jonathan. That's not what the Bible's calling for in every relationship in our lives, nice as that would be. But instead, we need to work in our hearts right now where we are sitting in this room, work these things out. Because you and I in a moment are gonna come to the Lord's Supper together and we need to do that united together. Perhaps you and I need to forgive. Maybe it has to do with malice, someone sinned against us. Maybe we received sin from someone else against us and they didn't even know they did it. We need to find a way to, to forgive that person Maybe we need to confess our sin to God. Maybe we've been dragging around bitterness and malice for some time. It's time to lay down that burden. It could be this morning that we need to confess our sin to another Christian. Maybe we need to ask their forgiveness. The Bible says confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. How often do we do that? See, this Lord's Supper this morning is meant not only to remind us of our unity to God, but to remind us of our unity to one another and to keep a short leash on those things which disunify and ultimately harm our worship. So today, now, this morning, it's the time to get out of that spiritual slump between you and the Lord where you are and you and that person when you get up. We can worship God today with a faithful love to God and a faithful love toward one another. Let's bow together. Father, I pray for us in this moment confronted by the problems of Malachi's day and realizing we're not so far away. I pray for us as we examine our relationships. I pray for great grace and mercy in bringing any brokenness to light. I pray you be gentle and compassionate with us, your people. I pray that we would not fall under your judgment, but fall under your forgiveness, and that we would make things right where we need to. I pray, Father, for great encouragement, that if any struggle with this this morning or doubt, and maybe for years they've tried, Lord, I pray that today would be a new day. I pray that they would find your your grace and your mercy to be sufficient, and to be that which will help them overcome and reconcile or forgive. 
Oh, Lord, we love you and we need you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.